But, uh, but yeah, so we've been going through uh, the Gospel of Luke, uh, looking at Jesus' earthly ministry and, and the way that God, through the Holy Spirit, was empowering him, uh, that the Holy Spirit was poured out in him without measure, uh, and that he would just encounter people all over in all of these different communities. And wherever he went, he was representing God's kingdom and showing what, is, uh, what it would be like to be fully human, fully walking in the image of God that you and I have been made in, that, that God desires that he would work through us in similar means, that we would be the light to the world that Jesus was. And so Jesus, when we were reading last week, we read about the fact that Jesus taught with authority, that he, he taught different from the scribes and the Pharisees, that he taught the Bible as though it were true. He didn't have to speculate about what God was like or what God's kingdom was like. He could just tell it like it is, right? He was there when the earth was made, right? He was there when we were made. He has the plan for us. He knows where we're going, right? And so, so Jesus was able to teach with authority, unlike even today, right, pastors or teachers uh, still have to sometimes speculate where the Bible is, right, obviously very clear in some areas, but right now we're in a season uh, in which we only know in part, right? We don't have full knowledge of what all of God's plans are, but what we do know is his character and his goodness, uh, that he's proven himself faithful and true, someone who can be trusted. And so today we're going to continue looking at Jesus's earthly ministry, and uh, I guess like as a couple of case studies, see how he invited people to follow him into relationship with himself, uh, that he would have the crowds present But he was interested in something more than just attendance. Uh, He was interested in people that would have their lives drastically changed because of what he brought. And so let's see, I'm not sure if this is picking up some reverb there, but uh, Luke chapter 5 is where we're starting today. I've got it up on the screen. My man Toby's helping me out today. Luke chapter 5, verse 1, it says this, On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, Pause, all right, sorry, I'm not going to go this slow all the time, but here we go, right? The crowd was pressing in on Jesus to hear the word of God. So they had already recognized that there was value in what Jesus was bringing, all right? Frequently, the crowds would come after Jesus because they would hear how he would heal the sick, and they would bring all of their sick to Jesus, and he would heal them, all right? And so there were instances in his ministry where people would just come after him because of the things he could offer. But this crowd was a little bit different where they realized one of the most valuable things Jesus brought was the word of God. And we read about that last week as well, that when Jesus taught, he taught with compassion for the people, that one of the most loving things that Jesus does is he brings the truth to us, that he exposes lies, that he liberates us from darkness, right, that he, he brings us and invites us into relationship with himself. And so these crowds were able to recognize that what Jesus was bringing was of value, right? And I know that like even in my own heart, in my own flesh, I don't always value the word of God like that, right? Sometimes I have to like, all right, I should probably really read the Bible today, right? Like I, I need to kind of like uh, encourage myself to take that step. But But the word of God is still valuable even when we inaccurately assess its value, right? Even even when we don't recognize it or we don't feel like it in the moment, 
The word of God is still one of the most valuable things to produce life and change in us. And so these crowds recognized that. And he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, right? So that's the same as the Sea of Galilee. Uh, It's got two different names, kind of like Lake Whitingham and the Harriman Reservoir. It's the same lake right here. Uh, And actually, you'll you'll notice that is somewhat of an annoying theme today, is that the lake's got two different names. Many of these Bible figures have multiple names for the same person, so try to track with me as best as you can. Uh, We'll do what we can. So he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake. But the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets, right? So they're mending their nets. Uh, they just worked all night, as we'll find out in a little bit. And, and Jesus sees these two boats. And getting into one of them, a little bit presumptuous, uh, which was Simon's, he asked him to put it out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And so now this crowd that uh, is desperate to hear him preach the word of God is, is hearing him, right? They're, right? He's got a little bit of distance from them for, for comfort, it seems, or audible value there. But uh, in addition to this crowd, now these fishermen who have just worked all night as they're cleaning and mending their nets are hearing Jesus teach, right? They're hearing the word of God. Uh, and so Jesus says, verse 4, when he had finished speaking, right? So Jesus finishes his sermon, whatever that looks like. I don't know how long that is, right? But he said to Simon, this fisherman, you might know Simon, by the way, uh, by the name of Peter is a a more common name that he goes by. Uh, When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And so this is like this weird moment. So Peter's cleaning his nets He hears Jesus teach this whole sermon, and now Jesus is making this particular request of Simon, Uh, and it's kind of like unusual, like, uh, and I don't know if there's a degree of peer pressure that Simon is experiencing, right? There's this like massive crowd, and then the person that they're all here to see, like, he turns to, hey, go do this, you know, go back out onto the lake and throw your net down into the water. And, And based on, maybe you're familiar with this story. Based on the results, it seems as though Jesus is operating under the power of the Holy Spirit here. All right? It's not like he's just some, like, super talented fisherman, because I I don't think he was. He was actually trained to be a a carpenter. All right? But but, uh, nonetheless, the Holy Spirit seems to be giving Jesus some sort of, like, prophetic uh, or word of knowledge sort of thing in which he's telling Peter to do something in particular to catch fish. Uh, and the purpose of this, which the purpose of any of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, is not to catch fish in this regard, but to produce faith in us to believe, to trust what God would say, right? To, to point to the fact that his message is true. It's a means of, of validation, a means of verification. Uh, it authenticates the message that's being spoken, and so, so uh, God, it seems, is happy to provide evidence to make it justifiable to believe in him, all right, to make it easier to trust in him. God is one who is content and happy to prove himself true to us. The, the kind of faith that pleases God isn't a blind faith. And even though Peter had just heard an entire sermon from Jesus, Jesus, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, realizes This guy needs a little bit more. I'm actually going to give this guy an opportunity, this moment in which I'm going to show up in his life specifically, beyond him just hearing the word of God, and I'm going to prove myself to him. 
And it's going to result in Simon having the ability to step out in even greater faith as a result of what he sees. And so verse 5 says this, And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. And so Simon, at this moment, has enough reason to try, right? Like he's, he's, yeah, he's exhausted. He probably doesn't feel like it. He's just had an unsuccessful night of fishing with zero fish to show for it, right? And he's like a professional fisherman. This is his, his job. But nonetheless, he's, he's willing to take a small step of faith, all right? Jesus had given him enough reason that it was worth this this minor risk, this minor inconvenience to figure out maybe there's something here. Maybe this is worth looking into, right? And so, so the Holy Spirit, right, leads Jesus to make this claim. And now Peter is willing to entertain this request, right, even though it's an inconvenience because Jesus had already been speaking to him and providing some degree of evidence that maybe this guy's worth listening to, right? And so Peter takes this step of faith. And in response, right, he's going to now have even greater faith when God shows up in his life, okay? And, and I want to suggest that, that Jesus is one who is worth investigating. That, that regularly when uh, people encounter Jesus, when he proves himself as real, when he reveals himself to the people who love him, right? He then, uh, they, they then go out and, and they invite people to say, hey, you gotta come and see this guy, right? You've gotta come and check this out. I want you to meet this person, right? Who, who told me everything that he, he could know about me. Like, it's amazing. Like, he knew everything about me and he spoke all of it, right? Or, or you've gotta check out this guy from Nazareth and Nathaniel would be like, like, yeah, what good ever comes from Nazareth? But he's like, all right, fine, you're my friend. I'll go check out this Jesus guy, right? And, and regularly, they invite people, say, come and see, investigate. Is this true? Okay, right? Like, I think I found the person who's the Messiah, right? The one that's spoken about in the law and the prophets. And, and, and they'll regularly go and talk to their friends. And, and I think God, fortunately for us, gives us enough reason, enough evidence to at least take the next step of faith, to, to suffer some degree of minor inconvenience to figure out whether or not this is real, right? That this is, this, this is the experience that I had had at 16 years old, I'd grown up in the church and heard the stories, but at 16, I had to figure out, is this true? Is this real? Right? Like, what, what is up with this whole God thing? Right? I had to figure out, like, is this true? Because I knew that if God was real, that he should be the most important thing in my life. And at that moment, I realized, and I, it was obvious, that he wasn't. But I knew it wasn't sufficient for me to reject it in that moment without further investigation. And that's when I started like reading the Bible by myself and asking questions and attempting to take out little, little steps of faith and applying it as though, what if this was true? And then experiencing God showing up repeatedly in my life, proving himself as true. Right? Like, and that's the way that God works. He doesn't ask you to take a step of faith beyond what is what I would suggest is reasonable, right? But it's, it's worth investigating. What if this is real? And so Peter and his friends, right, they, they take their boat out, they, they cast their net 
into the deep. And then they, they have this unusual occurrence. Verse 6. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. And they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they began, <laughs> and they came, and they filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. All right, so they get, they get this tremendous haul of fish. Right? All of these guys, professional fishermen, have never seen anything like this. That they're, they're just astonished. Right? Like their boats are beginning to sink. And, and consider this as somewhat like of a parallel experience in our own lives. Right? That apart from Jesus, we can toil all night and still have pretty much nothing to show for it. That if I try to live this life in all of my own effort and strength, that I'm still going to come up short of what what God would call me to do, right? I'm still going to come up short of even living up to my own standards of morality, right? Like I'm going to just fail repeatedly, right? Over and over with some glimpses of success here and there. But with Jesus, if we're willing to obey him and step out in faith and trust him, we can experience uh, even abundance that he desires to bless us with, right? That he will meet us where we are and then lead us into the life that he's calling us to live. That we'll be able to walk out the good works that he's ordained for us to, to do. And so think about what's going through Simon Peter's mind as he like, has heard Jesus teach, right? just was unsuccessful all night, listens to Jesus' word, at your word, I'll let down the nets, and then sees this huge haul of fish come in. Consider like this like, you know, in, in his heart, like this moment of potential, like greed of, man, if I could have this Jesus guy, like be a part of my business, like this would be awesome, right? Like this would be amazing. Like I, I'm set for life. Like I'm financially independent here. This is incredible. Like if this guy just could tell me where to go fishing and when to go fishing, I could sleep during the night and then just go fishing for 30 minutes and, and then I'll be set. But this isn't how Simon responds. It says in verse 8, it says, but when Simon Peter saw it. Okay, so he sees this massive haul of fish. But this isn't the only thing that he sees. This isn't the only realization that he comes to. He sees Jesus finally for who he really is. He sees Jesus as not just this good teacher, this rabbi who happened to borrow his boat as a pulpit. But he sees Jesus as this guy has some authority over this world, right? Where he was able to recognize something that even me and all my expert fishermen friends never could have realized, right? That there's something different about this Jesus guy. And Peter, when he realizes who Jesus is, he's reminded of who he is. And his lack and his insufficiency, his, his own sin, and it says this in verse 8, right? But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. He says, Jesus, get out of here. You don't want anything to do with me. Like, I've realized who you are. I don't know if you know who I am. But you don't want anything to do with me. That's what, that's what Peter came to the conclusion of. Right? It says the reason why is verse 9, for he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And the thing that Peter concluded was, this guy is not just a regular teacher. 
He recognized him as Lord, as someone who has authority, who is deserving of the title master. And the thing that he requests of this master is that, that he leaves. He's like, Jesus, just get out of here. Like, get out of here. I don't deserve to be in your presence. Right? You are a godly man, and the thing I'll tell you about myself is that I am not. That Peter felt shame being in the presence of Jesus. And what's interesting is that even though Peter had heard Jesus speak, even though Peter had heard this entire sermon and he had some idea of who Jesus was, he was rejecting Jesus under a false assumption. He had his own presuppositions of, okay, I think I figured out who this Jesus guy is. I know who I am, and I think I know how Jesus should respond. Jesus needs to leave me alone because I'm not the kind of person he's looking for. I'm not the kind of person that deserves to be in his presence. And the sad thing about that would be is if Jesus had listened to Peter, Peter would have led the rest of his life thinking that he encountered the real Jesus, which he did, but he would have only seen or understood a portion of who Jesus was. And he would have rejected Jesus based on his presuppositions about what Jesus should have done in that moment. And right, and he, he probably would agree. He's like, yeah, this, this Jesus guy is a holy man. This Jesus guy is filled with the Holy Spirit. This Jesus guy is Lord. But he would have said, but this guy doesn't, doesn't want me. And he would have been wrong about that conclusion. 100% wrong. Even though he had this, this encounter with Jesus, he would have sent him away. Right? He would have realized that he was sinful, that God is holy, but he would have not yet understood how a holy God would want to spend time with a rebellious person, a person with a heart that is against him, that is the enemy of God. Right? He wouldn't have understood how is God going to reconcile these issues of, of justice and mercy. How is God going to balance this issue of wrath that I deserve because of the wrong I've done? And love for me. Right? He would, have, he would have only seen a glimpse, a portion of who Jesus was. And so when we investigate Jesus, we need to be careful not to reject him too early. Based on what we think Jesus is like. Or based on what uh, maybe he's been represented to us as by some of his followers. When they failed to accurately represent him to us. Right? We need to be careful not to just reject him because of things that we may have heard or things that maybe have initially offended us, or things that he said, right, when we don't yet fully understand who he is. We might even realize that following Jesus is costly, that it would require some amount of change in our lives, but we may inaccurately assess the true value of Jesus, that following him is something that is worth surrendering everything else for. Right? We, might, we might realize that there's this cost to following him, but not understand that with joy we could leave all, out, all else in order to follow him. So verse 10 says, And so also were James and John, the sons of, of Zebedee, these other two brothers that were his partners, these fishermen, uh, right, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Okay, so, so Simon and all his fisher buddies, right, they're all like shocked at who Jesus is. Simon gets down on his knees and says, Jesus, get out of here. I'm a sinful man, right? And he calls him Lord. 
But this is Jesus' response. Do not be afraid. Which Peter actually didn't say that he was scared, right? Like, but he says, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And I want to point out, like, first of all, Jesus doesn't lie to Peter. He doesn't say, uh, when, when Peter's like, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. Jesus is like, no, no, you're a great guy, Peter. <laughs> you know, like, really, you're, you're so much nicer than so many other people in Israel. Like, you're a good person, Peter. Jesus doesn't say that, right? Jesus doesn't shower on flattery and platitudes to make Peter feel better about himself. Because in reality, Jesus actually agrees with Peter. Yeah, Peter, you're a sinful man, right? Like, he actually fully agrees with Peter's self-assessment. The thing that Jesus disagrees with is what the appropriate response to Peter is. Where, where Jesus is not interested in leaving Peter alone. Jesus is actually interested in pursuing Peter and inviting him into relationship. But... but but Jesus first encounters Peter. He says, right, do not be afraid. Because sometimes the, the reality of recognizing our own failures, especially considering the presence of a holy God and how far we are from his goodness, right, we might respond afraid. And this is, this is the human response. In fact, all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, the, the first sin of humanity... It says this in verse 9, but the Lord God called to the man, right? Adam and Eve story. Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Right? That one of the possible responses to realizing the weight and burden of our sin is fear and running from the God who loves us. Right? Being afraid of what if he finds out? of what, I'm, what I've done. Like, what if he realizes how sinful of a person I am? Right, like, I mean, because, you know, maybe for ourselves, we're able to keep our own egos satisfied of like, well, no, but I'm, I'm a pretty good person. Like, I do, I do enough good things to outweigh the bad. But no, 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 when we realize who we are in comparison to this holy God, we may respond with fear. But yet God wants to restore us. God wants to invite us to a, a place of relationship with himself. God wants to be with us. And in fact, Jesus himself is going to be the solution to this sin problem. Jesus himself is going to be victorious over sin and death. Jesus himself, in his mission, in his actions, is going to, to reconcile this wrath against sin and the love of God at the same time in this peculiar way where he will pay for the penalty of the wrong that we've done so that we can be forgiven and invited back into relationship with God. Right? This, this paradox of how could a holy God want to be with the likes of us? Jesus is the one that solves that paradox. Right Where we would, as humans, never hoped to dream at the possibility that God would love us and forgive us when it was so obvious we were guilty according to his own law. And so Jesus invites Peter to follow him. Not only does Jesus plan on hanging out with Peter for that day, but he now says, Peter, 
hang out with me for the rest of your life. I want to be with you all the time. I want you to follow me. In, in Matthew and Mark's account of this story, he says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Right? That Jesus invites Peter to a relationship. It's not just this one moment where Peter's like, no, Jesus, you've got to get out of here. I'm a sinful person. Like Jesus is like, no, no, no. Let's hang out actually for the rest of your life. Right? Jesus invites Peter into relationship with himself. Jesus seeks out Peter and wants to be with him, even though he's a sinful man. And Jesus actually describes to Peter what a potential future would be like if Peter followed Jesus. He says, listen, if you follow me, like I'm not just looking at you as some additional follower. He's like, you and me, I'm going to change your life. I'm going to give you mission that you'll go out into this world and be a fisher of men. Right? He says, Peter, from now on. Right? And so he's not just trying to like, resolve this one moment, this, this one like, difficulty that, that Peter's dealing with and his, his own failures, his own sin. He's like, Peter, Peter, I'm not just trying to bring you to a level of neutral where you're not causing harm to other people and yourself because of your sin. I'm planning on giving you mission, going beyond that, in which you're going to be a force for good in this world that I've made. Right? And so he, he casts this vision for Peter and says, listen, I'm inviting you to something more. And I want to suggest, did, did Jesus' future for Peter suggest some perfect world? No. He gives Peter a small glimpse of what it would be like. And Jesus actually does this kind of prophetic vision for Peter later on. That in, uh, at the end of John's Gospel, after Jesus has been raised from the dead, he goes and finds Peter. And he actually tells Peter about his future again. But he tells him some like really bad news. He's like, when you're older, someone else is going to carry you where you don't want to go. Someone else is going to bind your hands and take you where you would not want to go. And he said this, indicating the kind of death that Peter would experience because of Jesus' name. All right, that the future that Jesus tells is not always this convenient, abundance, blessing, super large fish hall sort of life that we would like it to be. That sometimes the future that Jesus invites us to, the mission that Jesus invites us to, might include our suffering. But the thing that Jesus would suggest is regardless of what we experience in this life, it will still be worth it in comparison to choosing the life apart from Jesus. Right? It would still be worth it. And so verse 11 says, And when they had brought their boats to land, this is so crazy, they left everything and followed him. Right? Like Peter just caught all of these fish Right, This in incredible boom in the economy of his business. And he leaves it. That Peter realizes that any blessing, any good thing, any gift that Jesus could give me is nothing compared to having Jesus. Right, That, that like, thank you Jesus for blessing me with all of these things, but I'm not going to look to you as some sort of genie that's going to grant my wishes. That, that in that moment, he realized Jesus was more valuable than anything that Jesus could give him. That he was willing to walk away. He was like, I'm just going to leave this, these fish here, leave my boats here, leave my business, 
and just start following Jesus. And like, this is one thing that we need to be cautious of because I know in our hearts, sometimes we want to negotiate and bargain with God and just be like, well, well, God, all right, I'll give you, I'll give you three Sundays a month, but in exchange, you've got to start doing this for me and this for me. And like, like we're trying to find a way to like trick God into blessing us. But Jesus being with us is the best blessing he could give. All right, God already cashed the check and deposited it in our account, giving us the best thing he could ever give us, which is Jesus, right? And it says in Romans, will he not then also give us all good things, right? It's like for, for God to be even considering that would be like, I just gave you a million dollars and now I'm like, I've got these two pennies. I don't know. I'm not really willing to part with these though. You're like, no, no, no. God is thrilled. He's already given us his best. And Peter realizes that in this moment, that Jesus is worth everything, even this incredible abundance he gave. And so, so the Holy Spirit, in, in coordinating this whole moment, it wasn't about Peter suddenly catching a lot of fish. The issue, the reason why God allows this moment to happen was to increase Peter's faith, to give him reason to follow Jesus, right? To, to make it a sufficient, right, sufficient amount of evidence for Peter to conclude Jesus is worth following. Jesus is worth changing my entire life for. And that's what Peter concludes. But actually what's interesting is this instance, this whole story, this narrative, isn't the first time that Peter met Jesus. Peter actually has this brother named Andrew. And I don't know if Andrew was fishing with Peter all the time, but Andrew was a disciple of John the Baptist who we'd read about a few chapters ago. And John the Baptist, right, right, he's the guy that ends up baptizing Jesus, who announces that Jesus is the Lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world. Uh, that John the Baptist is hanging out with Peter's brother and this other disciple of his, and when he sees Jesus coming down the hill one day, he says, again, behold the Lamb of God. And so then, like, John's two disciples are like, oh, that guy? Like, all right. And then, like, they, like, go and, like, go over to Jesus and, like, hey, what are you, what are you doing? Like, what, can we hang out with you? Right? And they, and they seek Jesus and, like, hang out with Jesus for an afternoon. And after that meeting, after that teaching that Jesus gives them, this is what they end up doing. It says this in John chapter 1, verse 40. One of the two who heard John, the Baptist, speak and followed Jesus was Andrew. Simon Peter's brother. He first found his brother Simon. All right, so he has this afternoon with Jesus, and the very next thing that Andrew does, he hunts down Peter. So he first found Simon his brother, right, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ, right? And, and how did they know that Jesus was the Messiah? How did they know this? Because Jesus, right, taught them from the scriptures. He gave them evidences from the word of God, written hundreds of years before Jesus' birth in, into the world, right? Uh, the things that God had foreordained for the Messiah to do. Things that if Jesus was a regular person, could not have created a conspiracy in order to, right, make us believe that. So like when Jesus hung out with them, they ended up coming to the conclusion that this Jesus is the Messiah that had been prophesied about in the Old Testament. And in fact, throughout Jesus' earthly ministry, he fulfills over 300 unique prophecies about this Christ, the one that, that God is sending into the world to save us. 
And so they come to that conclusion. And Andrew, the first thing he does is he goes and tells Peter this. Verse 42. It says he brought him to Jesus. He's like, you got to check this guy out. Like, we found him. And like, you know, Peter's like, all right, my brother's kind of kooky right now. Like, but I'm, I'm going to at least go investigate who this Jesus guy is. And then Jesus, uh, John's summary here is a lot shorter. But this is what it says. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You should be called Cephas, which means Peter. And like, that's literally all that John gives us. Right? Where he's like, Jesus just gives him the nickname. Like, Peter just means rock. He's like, hey, man, Rocky, how you doing? You know? Like, it was like, okay. But, but it seems as though Peter had already learned some things about Jesus. His brother had already come to this conclusion and brought him to Jesus. And like, he's like, my brother thinks this guy's the Messiah. And then like, Peter also lends Jesus his fishing boat. And then he has this experience. And all of these things are like, barraging Peter's life to finally bring him to the conclusion that Jesus is Lord. And he's willing then to leave everything. To leave everything. And so when it comes to like being willing to leave everything for Jesus, we're not just like inviting him into our lives to make our lives better for us. Like we're not going to be the God in the situation where he is now here to serve me and just like... a you know, approve and, and stamp blessings on the plans that I have for myself. In fact, it says this in Colossians 1.10. It says, once we follow him, right, we are to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Right, that, that following Jesus means that your life is changed. It's not about a life that's all about pleasing myself. But now I'm living a life worthy of the one who gave himself for me. I've got one more quick story here. In Matthew cha- or Luke chapter 5, verse 27. Right? Jesus meets another disciple. It says this. After this, he went straight out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. All right, so like this is a much shorter story, <laughs> okay? Uh, and, and Levi, who's also referred to as Matthew, I know a bunch of names for the same people, sorry. Uh, Levi is a tax collector, someone who the community would have agreed is a sinner, okay? Where, where Peter came to that conclusion about himself, Levi is someone who everyone would say, that guy is a sinner, That guy is a traitor to his own friends and family. He sold us out to the Roman Empire to collect taxes against his own people in order to make a quick buck. Right? Everyone would agree that Levi is not someone you should hang out with. Right? And and yet Jesus goes and sees this guy being essentially a traitor to his nation, according to what many people would have felt. And he invites him to follow him. And this is so peculiar because Jesus is inviting people to follow him who are not those who are in authority or power or are even necessarily educated. He's going after just regular folk, right? He's not even going after the, the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders of his day. He's demonstrating that God's heart is for all of humanity, right? He's inviting all people, even the outcasts of society, into relationship with him. And notice this is Levi's response. I like this guy, right? He, he, he just leaves everything, follows Jesus, and check out verse 29. He, like, 
He's like this incredibly new follower of Jesus, and he's like, I know how I celebrate things. I have a party with all my friends. And so I just had this really cool experience of meeting Jesus. I'm going to throw an awesome party, right? Like, here he goes. And so verse 29, Levi made a great feast in his house. Made him, Jesus, a great feast in his house. He's wanting to celebrate Jesus. He's like, this guy wants to hang out with me who no one wants to be my friend, right? Like, the only friends I have are other tax collectors and sinners, the other outcasts of society. And it says this, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And so Levi wants to celebrate Jesus. And just like these other disciples, these other people who encounter Jesus, they immediately want to be like, I'm going to tell my friends. Like, they've got to see this guy. This is awesome, right? And so he throws this party. And verse 30, I don't know if this is like, like later on, or if this is like where the Pharisees and scribes also at this party, but nonetheless, verse 30, and the Pharisees and scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Right? So the perspective this time was like Peter's response, except they were applying it to other people of like, Jesus, you, you shouldn't be around those people. Like, you got to get out of there, Jesus. Like, if you're this good teacher, if you're a holy person, you need to leave those people, right? And what's weird is they actually don't even go to Jesus. They complain to his other disciples. And then verse 31, Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And so what's interesting is Jesus doesn't disagree with the Pharisees that these people are sinners. Just like he didn't disagree with Peter when Peter said he was a sinner. Right? Jesus is actually like, yep, they, they are. You're right. And uh, later on in Jesus' ministry, he'll butt heads with the Pharisees of, uh, a lot, right? in which he'll call them out for the fact that they, have a, they do really good at looking great on the outside, but are hiding pride and lust and all of these issues, anger and jealousy in their hearts. And Jesus actually tells them <laughs> that they're a brood of vipers, that they're whitewashed tombs, right? They, they look great on the outside. It's like a, a whitewashed tomb, but inside it's full of defiled bones, right? There, there's no life in them. And so what the thing that Jesus does is and he rattles society in his day is because he's willing to identify the fact that all of our sin, whether outward or inward, are things that interfere with our relationship with God. And when Jesus invites any of us into relationship with him, he's already going far beyond right, the standard of morality that we would think is appropriate because we know we failed. All right, We know we failed. And what's interesting is that the thing that is a struggle for this, these Pharisees is that they're not able to get over their own pride to admit that they need a savior, that they as well are sinners, right? That, that what Jesus says here is he didn't come, right, for the, the, the righteous, but, the, but those who are sinners, and he invites them to repent, right? He says he is like a doctor coming to heal the sick, right? He is here to cure the problem that we all have, all right, that, that he recognizes, yeah, these people are sick. They are sinners. But that's everybody. And Jesus is the solution to that problem. It says this in, in Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, 
and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all had sinned. So this is the idea, that you and I, all of humanity, we are sinners by both nature and by choice. Right? That, that we have failed to keep God's standard. Right? And the, but check this out in verse 17, skipping down. It says, For if, because of one man's trespass, one man's sin, death reigned through that one man, much more, all right, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So what, what this is saying is that Jesus is the one to cure the main sickness that all of humanity has, which are hearts that are rebellious, hearts that want to live life according to our own means, to define right and wrong, good and evil on our own terms, right? That want to be the God of our own lives with full authority over every choice that we would make. But through Jesus, we can be healed. We can be forgiven, right? And then we can walk in freedom, right? We can be imputed righteousness is the concept, the theological term, right? That we will be considered right before God, that people like me, people like Peter can have access to God, that even though we're sinners, right, we can through Jesus have access to God. And so verse 32, the last verse, Jesus says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And so big idea, right? Jesus isn't looking for the people who think they're good enough on their own terms. Jesus is hunting down and looking for and seeking opportunity to reach people who are sinners, people who know that they're sinners, who know that their lives aren't all together. But it's not that he's content to just say, hey, I just want to have a club for sinners. Because he doesn't invite them to just follow him, but stay where they are. Because Jesus does love us just the way we are, but he also loves us way too much to leave us that way. Right? He invites sinners to repent, right? to, to admit that we need change, that we've wrecked our lives in our own way, right? and that we need to be forgiven. That a life following Jesus is not just about this one moment where it's like, Jesus, I need you. It's a life where repeatedly we are following him and becoming more and more like him. That towards the end of, of Jesus' earthly ministry, when he encounters Peter, after Peter had already hung out with him for three years, after Peter had failed to do the right thing, after Peter would repeatedly say the wrong or offensive things, after Peter denied even knowing Jesus at Jesus' greatest moment of need, right? Jesus seeks Peter out, right? He invites him back into relationship. He says, Peter, right, I'm, I want you to feed my sheep, to care for people, to teach them the truth. You're going to be led down a path of suffering that's going to be difficult. You're going to be led to a, a death that you don't want. But you know what, Peter? Follow me. That follow me is an invitation not just for those who have not yet encountered Jesus. Follow me is an, an invitation for all of us. It's a repeated decision that we have to make every day. Even after you've been hanging out for, with Jesus for three years or for decades, are we willing to follow him? And following him is worth it every time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much 
for your goodness and mercy. We thank you, Lord, that you seek out the lost to save us. Uh, That you are the good shepherd who is willing to leave the 99 to find the one that is stray. Uh, That, God, you invite us into relationship even though everything within us might be signaling that, that we want you to depart because we're sinners. I thank you, Lord, that we can have confidence in you, that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That, Lord, we can boldly go before your throne of grace. That where we have failed, you make mercy available. But also where we have failed, you invite us to to get back up and to continue following you. To trust you to lead us and guide us into all truth. And so, Lord, I ask that you would challenge us, even if we've been following you for a long time, that we would continue to make that decision. That we would continue to invite you into our lives. That we would let you be the Lord of our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.